If you will open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Last week we spent our time examining David's sin with Bathsheba. We, in that study, uh, spent most of our time pointing out the ways in which David missed the opportunity for an escape route. But then we concluded by looking at how David tried to cover up his sin once the pregnancy of Bathsheba became known. Tonight, we're transitioning away from the sin to the aftermath, to what happens following his cover-up operation in which Uriah is ultimately killed. And that aftermath takes place here in the 12th chapter, and it begins with a prophet, the very prophet that David consulted about building the temple, the prophet Nathan. And so what I'd like you to do is read with me here for just a moment, because Nathan has to enter the scene because David has come to believe that he's gotten away with sin. Or at least he's assumed that nobody knows about his sin, and he's going on with life as if nothing has happened. He's not acknowledged that he's done something wrong. He's not repented of it. So the prophet Nathan is led to David to confront him on the matter. And look at how he handles this. Verses 1 through 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat, at his, uh, eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's interesting that this parable, which is essentially what this is, that Nathan is using to expose David's sin, is focused on sheep. The one strategy to open David's eyes that Nathan, either intuitively or divinely, knew would work, was to appeal to this former shepherd's way of life. The guy that fought the lion and the bear to protect his own flock can be pricked in the heart by being reminded not of his royalty, not of his warrior status, but of, it, but of his role as a shepherd. And look at how this touched David. Picking up in verse 5 and 6, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You see, by using that parable of sheep, Nathan tapped into the, um, the, uh, the heart of David. And David has this very visceral reaction to the situation. He thinks that the, 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 the man who's, who killed that one lamb deserves death, not knowing that Nathan is talking about him. 
So Nathan has used this story, this parable, based on sheep to appeal to David's emotions so that David will get what's happening here. And that's when Nathan confronted David with the the personal application, which you'll see in verse 7. He says, you are the man. Now, here's where the aftermath comes into play. Here's where we see what really happens upon David's realization of his sin. And it's going to boil down to two major things. One positive, one negative. In the aftermath of realizing his sin, the positive outcome is that David repents. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. In the aftermath of of this parable, in in this moment where David realizes his sin, his immediate reaction, his immediate response is to repent. And Nathan, in turn, immediately announces his forgiveness and the removal of of any eternal consequences. You shall not die. But to really discover the sincerity and depth of David's repentance, we actually need to step outside of 2 Samuel for a bit. Because for the text to just say, I have sinned against the Lord, doesn't convey the entirety of what David does here. It's kind of like when you get to the New Testament and you read, there they crucified him. There's so much more behind those few words than what we see. So if you'll journey to Psalm chapter 51 with me, I want you to see what David's repentance fully entails. See, it's Psalm 51. If you look at the superscription, the little uh, heading that appears under the chapter before you get to verse 1, It tells us the context of this particular psalm. And Psalm 51, we're told, is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. The Psalm Psalm 51 is specifically written in the context of what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Isn't that beautiful? That God in his wisdom has brought together texts that correlate to one another in different books and in different genres. So here we have Psalm 51 that sheds light into the mind and the heart of David at this time that he has acknowledged, I have sinned against the Lord. And I want you to see in Psalm 51 what that repentance entailed for David. First, I want you to notice that David appealed to God for help. David begins this psalm by asking for God's help. Look at verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. It's important to notice that the basis for David's request for forgiveness here has nothing to do with himself. He grounds, as one author says, he grounds the appeal in the character of God who exhibits unfailing love and great compassion. See, David is fully aware that he doesn't deserve God's mercy. And so he appeals to God's revealed character. 
He's appealing to God for help because he knows who God is. He's the God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. And those are characteristics that God revealed about himself to the Israelites many years before. See, if you go back to Exodus chapter 34, and remember, many times throughout our study of David, we've seen him recognize God's word from Mosaic law and its application in his life, but we've also seen times where he didn't. Last week, we saw that he failed to apply Mosaic law to his marital status as a king. But previously, we've seen how when he failed with the Ark of the Covenant, what did he, with the transport of the Ark of the Covenant, what does he do? He goes back to the book to find out how he's supposed to transport it. I think we have here David in his opening of this psalm recognizing something God said about himself in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. We're told there the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, who is speaking that? I'll give you a hint. It's not Moses. God is making a self-declaration here. Picking up in verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God, in this moment of Exodus chapter 34, is declaring of himself that he abounds in steadfast love, that he is merciful and gracious that he is slow to anger, that he is indeed a forgiver of sins. And do you know what Moses was doing at that moment when God made this declaration? If you go back just two verses, verse 4 of Exodus 34, you'll see that Moses was cutting two tablets of stone like the first. In other words, this self-revelation from God about his steadfast love and faithfulness happened just two chapters after Moses broke the original tablets of stone at the foot of Mount Sinai when he descended that mountain and found the people worshiping a golden calf. Do you remember how God reacted when his people were down there worshiping the golden calf? When Moses descended with the original tablets of the testimony, God had told him this. Exodus chapter 32, verse 9 and 10. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. God was infuriated with the Israelites and wanted to annihilate them. I didn't quote this part of the text, but if you look at the verses that immediately follow, verses 11 through 13, Moses speaks to the Lord, reminds the Lord who he is, not that God needed reminding, but just spoke about God's identity and God's promises and what the reputation of God would be if he did what he 
felt like doing here. Now, God didn't need that reminder. Because God wasn't going to erase his people because God had made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And that's why in verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You see, David here in the midst of his sin, when it's exposed to him, he repents. And in his repentance, the first thing he does is he appeals to the God that he's heard about, who is angered at sin, but who has revealed himself to be the sin forgiver, who revealed himself just two chapters after this moment. To be one who is steadfast with love, who is merciful and gracious, and who is willing to forgive sins. And so David in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He's appealing to the very character of God to help him in this moment because he is defenseless for what he's done. We keep looking at Psalm 51 and consider the context of what it takes to really repent. We see that David admitted his sin. After appealing to God for, uh, for his help because of the character of God, David then takes the first step in the process of repentance by confessing what he's done. Look at verse 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now you may look at these verses and think, David, yeah, you sinned against God, but didn't you sin against other people? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against Uriah? And that's absolutely true. But the point David is making here is not so much that God is the only one he's sinned against, but that God is the most important one that he's sinned against. Think about Joseph. When Joseph had the opportunity uh, um, to commit sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife, what was Joseph's declaration about that scenario and why he wouldn't do it? Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, Joseph said, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Every sin can be against someone else. But most importantly, every sin is and always will be against God. And that's what's on David's mind here. He's using hyperbole to indicate that his sin is so great because it's against God primarily. And this hyperbole is apparent Specifically, when you look at verse 5, which says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some have used this text to argue in favor of the Calvinistic doctrine of original sin or hereditary depravity. That's the, that's the idea that, that guilt is inherited from one's parents and is resident within each person at birth. That you are, that you are sinful at birth because sin is passed down. It's inherited. 
that doctrine is easily discredited in the Bible with passages like Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, where we're told that the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Also, you can think about Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus, rather than condemning children as sinners, Jesus commends them as examples of innocence, and so on. You even have Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, where Moses declares that children have no knowledge of good or evil. So you have all these passages in Scripture that discredit the idea of original sin. And so since original sin is inconsistent with Scripture, we have to view David's statement that he was brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin as hyperbole. It's kind of like me saying, I've been a minister all my life. That doesn't mean I've been a minister since I was born, that at the age of two I was already preaching before I could even put words together. No, when, when, I, when we use that level of hyperbole, what it means is I've been in ministry my entire career. But we use hyperbole to emphasize something. So ultimately, David's trying to declare the longevity of his sinfulness. He's saying that he's sinned more than just this one time. He's acknowledging that sin has had a constant presence in his life. And unfortunately, we can all sympathize with that sentiment. That sin has been present too long in our lives. Too often in our lives. The big takeaway from this section of the psalm is that David makes an open and honest admission of guilt. He's acknowledging that he's a sinner. And sometimes that's the hardest part for us. Oftentimes we don't want to admit that we're in the wrong. We don't want to own up to what we've done. But confession is always essential to repentance. David's son Solomon will later write in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so receiving forgiveness and restoring our relationship with God necessitates a confession of guilt, and that's what David does in this section of Psalm 51. But then from there, David specifically asks God for forgiveness. He returns to his initial plea, but this time instead of emphasizing who he's appealing to, he's focused on what he's appealing for. In the first couple of verses, he was emphasizing, hey, God, I need your help because you're the only one who is steadfast in love and merciful and gracious and forgiving. Now he's saying why he needs it, what he needs it for. Look at what he says in verse 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. All of these statements are unique ways of asking for forgiveness. And while much can be said about each of them, the one that stands out to me is the one that appears in verse 11. 
when he asked God not to cast him away from his presence and to not take his Holy Spirit away from him. You remember what David's first political office was? It's been several weeks since we studied that. After his anointing, Saul has him become his chief musician. Why did Saul need a personal musician? It's because due to Saul's disobedience, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord departed from him and a distressing spirit from God would come upon him, would torment him. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And David would come and play a musical instrument, and it would calm Saul's distressed and tormented spirit. David witnessed firsthand God's departure from Saul. David had a front row seat to see what it looked like when someone was cast out of the presence of God, when the Spirit of the Lord was removed from someone. Maybe that's why David was especially concerned about being cast from God's presence and having his Holy Spirit taken away. So when David appealed for God to forgive him, he didn't just ask God to keep his sin from being discovered. He didn't pray for there to be no consequences. His chief concern was none of that. His chief concern was that God would not take his spirit away. David didn't care if God took the kingdom away. David cared about whether or not God's presence and God's spirit would still reside with him. You know what? That should be our chief concern as well because sin that is not forgiven will send you to the place where God isn't. Realize this, the worst thing about hell is not the fire or the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the darkness because the darkness represents the fact that God isn't there. Because throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light and his absence is consistently associated with dark, darkness. Just think about 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when we hear this metaphor of darkness associated with hell, what that's telling us is that hell is a place where God is not. And trust me, the one place you don't want to be is the place where God is not. That's David's chief concern, and that's how he's pleading for God, or that's ultimately why he's pleading for God to forgive him, because he doesn't want to exist without God. He saw it firsthand in Saul, and he doesn't want to experience it. And so the point is, a penitent heart recognizes the consequences of sin, the real, eternal consequences of sin, and does everything in its power to avoid those consequences. And that's why it's willing to seek forgiveness. But you know what? Admitting we're wrong, asking for God's help, begging for God's forgiveness... That's not all it takes to repent. 
And we see this in David here in Psalm 51 when he affirmed his intent to change. See, repentance doesn't just mean that I regret what I did or that I am remorseful for what I did or that I acknowledged what I did. It also means that I orient my life in a different direction. The Greek word translated repent is metaneo. It means to change one's mind. It is derived from the combination of the preposition meta, which means with, after, behind, and the verb noeo, which means to perceive with the mind or to understand. So it literally means to think differently after. So to repent is to change the way you think or to change the way you act. It's all about change, turning around. But what does this change entail? It necessitates a regret of the sin committed, but it also necessitates a lifestyle that indicates a change of behavior and a ch- or a change of attitude. It's an about-face, to use a military term. David asks for forgiveness, for a clean heart, for a restored relationship with God, but then he identifies what changes he will make to his life to accompany that. Verse 13 through 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to turn around. I'm going to teach others, and I'm going to praise you. He's giving practical, uh, practical directions of how his life is going to be different. Oftentimes, we approach repentance as if, hey, I've acknowledged I did something wrong. I've claimed it. I'm done. And then we return right back to doing the same thing. That's not how repentance works. Jesus will instruct us to, uh, or maybe I'm thinking of John the Baptist, but that repentance means bearing fruit, evidence that your life has changed, evidence that your life is different. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. David's saying he's going to confront and correct the sin in other people's lives just as Nathan confronted and corrected the sin in his. He's saying that he's going to praise God with every opportunity that he has. He's saying that his life is going to be oriented around the one who is the source of his salvation. He's not just asking for forgiveness. He's also stating how he's going to change his life. So when we look at that text... And it says that David declared, I have sinned against God. It's not just him saying those words. It's him seeking God's help. It's him admitting what he did wrong. It's him requesting forgiveness. And it's him identifying how his life is going to be different. It's so much more. And Psalm 51 very clearly shares that with us in a powerful way. That was the first, cons- the first aftermath of Nathan's confrontation. 
David repented, and David was forgiven. But that's not the only aftermath. What we also find out is that David experiences temporal consequences. I noted earlier that when David repented and, and uh, Nathan announced his forgiveness, that David managed to avoid eternal consequences. Because Nathan announced that you shall not die. But David's still going to suffer some consequences. You have to think in terms of the thief on the cross for a moment. The thief on the cross acknowledges who Jesus is and then hears those beautiful words, Today you will be with me in paradise. There is a declaration of salvation extended to the thief on the cross, but that didn't keep the thief on the cross from dying on the cross. He still had to suffer the earthly consequences of his sins even though Jesus is declaring that the eternal spiritual consequences of his sins have been remedied. One thing we need to understand is that we can receive forgiveness from the Lord and avoid those eternal consequences, but we still, our sins may have earthly consequences that come with them, and that's what happens to David. I want you to run through what Nathan says to David for a moment. Even after Nathan has told David that his sins are forgiven, the very next verse, verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan turns around and says, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is heart-wrenching to hear. This child that was conceived by David and Bathsheba in this sinful way is going to die because of David's sin. A lot of people would look at this and think, well, that's a horrible God to worship if he's going to take the life of a child, an innocent child like that. And oftentimes, a situation like this, because it seems evident in Scripture that this child's death is associated with David's sin, we can oftentimes sound like the apostles when they witnessed that, when they encountered the blind man and said, who sinned, this man or his parents, for him to be blind? We associate horrible things that happen to innocent people with somebody else's sin. And that's not always the case. What we need to take away from this, uh, this event in the life of David is not that our God is a mean entity that kills babies, and we shouldn't take away that are that that are that things horrible things that happen to innocent people are not the result of someone's specific sin. Horrible things happen to innocent people. Jesus would talk about this uh, in a, a, a passage in Luke that will be a part of our Sunday night study coming up, where he talks about a, a, a tower falling on some people and killing them. He makes the point that sometimes things just happen, and it's nobody's specific fault. We live in a fallen world. And that status of a fallen world sometimes causes tragedy. In this instance, God's not being a vindictive evil entity by taking the life of this child. I can't make sense of everything God does, nor do I need to. In fact, I think that was a, a message that Ben was highlighting this past Sunday night. There is a sense in which God is punishing David. 
there is a sense in which God is sparing this child. The one thing we know is that child is not suffering an eternity in hell, nor is that child having to experience the sin-filled world that we do. I'm not trying to negate the, the horror of that. I'm just trying to speak some spiritual reality into it. But the very first temporal consequence that David faces is the loss of the child he conceived with Bathsheba. And David prayed for that child. David begged for that child's life. And you know what happened when his prayer didn't get answered? When that child died anyway? Do you know what David did? He got up, took a bath, got dressed, ate some food, and then went to praise God. Is that how you handle tragedy? That's a lesson for another day, though. Because what I want you to realize right now is this is not the only consequence David endured because of his sin with Bathsheba. It's the immediate consequence of his sin with Bathsheba. He's forgiven of the sin. He's not going to suffer the spiritual consequence of it, but he does suffer the consequence of the loss of a child. But if you look at verses 9 through 11, Nathan really announces more than just that consequence. Nathan says this, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. God announces via Nathan that there's going to be long-term consequences. The sword shall never depart from your house. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David's house is not going to be a pleasant house from this day forward. And just real quick, I want to run down what's going to happen in David's house for the next several chapters. This is chapter 12. In chapter 13, we read about an incestuous rape conducted by David's eldest son, Amnon, with his half-sister, Tamar. This is one of the most disturbing stories in all of the Bible. It's one of those sections of the Bible that we kind of ignore because we don't want to talk about this and we hate to use the terminology that's associated with it. But if you were to scan through verse 1 through 22 of 2 Samuel chapter 13, you have Amnon, David's eldest son, the heir apparent to the throne, who has this lustful attraction for his half-sister. And through some advice he receives from his cousin, he acts like he's sick. His father goes to check on him. He tells David, hey, you know what would really make me feel better? If you had my sister Tamar come and, and feed me something. And so David orders his daughter to go prepare a meal and feed Amnon, which, by the way, Amnon is named kind of like the Ammonites, just a side note there. It's really weird that David would name his kid that. But anyway... Tamar goes to Amnon's house, prepares a meal for him. He sends everybody out of the house, 
Then he grabs her like Potiphar's wife tried to grab Joseph and forces himself on her. She says, don't do this, don't do this, and gives many logical reasons. She even says, hey, you know what? I bet if you asked our dad, he would let us marry. Just don't defile me. He ignores all that. He rapes her. Then he kicks her out. See, by law, by Mosaic law, he now, because he has defiled her, is responsible for marrying her and would have to pay a financial penalty for his sin. But Amnon ain't doing that. He gets what he wants and then dismisses her. She now, from the way the text reads, never marries. She's suffering the brunt of it. And I can't help but think, doesn't Amnon sin against his own sister? Is it not reminiscent of David's own rape of Bathsheba? And I use that term with Bathsheba not because the text does or not because the text implies that, but because David essentially put Bathsheba in a situation where she didn't have a choice. Is, is there not some similarity here at the very least of David's sexual sin with Bathsheba and Amnon's sexual sin with Tamar? The sword shall not depart from your house. I will raise up evil from within your house against you. This is just the first. The second half of that chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 13, one chapter after the announcement of these consequences, you find out that Tamar has a brother, a full-blood brother named Absalom. And Absalom finds out what Amnon did. And Absalom's not too happy about it. But Absalom is actually quite a wise individual. We're actually told that he doesn't say good or bad to Amnon. He never brings up the subject with Amnon. He doesn't treat Amnon poorly for two years. After two years pass, Absalom stages... An intervention. He invites Amnon, as well as all their other princely brothers, to his residence up in another town outside Jerusalem where his sheep shearing was being finalized. Now, if you remember our study of, of uh, Nabal and Abigail a few weeks back, when sheep, sheep shearing season came into effect, that meant it was money season. And so they would often have a feast, a celebration because they're about to make a lot of money. Absalom's doing that. He's invited all of his brothers, so all the princes are gathered. And while Amnon gets drunk, Absalom has conspired with his servants to execute Amnon. That happens, and all of David's other sons go running. So does Absalom. Because Absalom has just murdered the heir apparent to the throne and now he is. Now he's the eldest son. And Absalom, deep down, knows that his dad doesn't like people harming the Lord's anointed. And more than likely, in the eyes of David, Amnon, as his eldest child, was the Lord's anointed. So Absalom flees after having killed his half-brother. Now, just think about the murder aspect of this is it not reminiscent of what david did to uriah so 
So Absalom flees. He doesn't go home. Instead, he goes to the king of Geshur, according to 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 34. And it's going to wind up being a prolonged separation between Absalom and David. Now, the reason Absalom goes to the king of Geshur, that king's name is Talmai, the reason he goes there is that's his grandfather. You can find in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 3 that Absalom is the son of David via his wife, Ma'akah, and she is the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. So Absalom, knowing that his life is in danger, that his dad might seek to harm him, because remember what David did to the guy that contributed to the death of King Saul? And to the guys that took out Saul's son, um, and I've already forgot his name, Second Samuel, I mean, 1 Samuel chapter 2, or chapter 4, actually. But, uh, Ishbosheth. The guys that harmed Saul, the Lord's anointed. The, guy that, the guys that harmed Ishbosheth, the son of Saul who was reigning before David. David had those guys executed because they did not respect the Lord's anointed. David himself wouldn't harm the Lord's anointed. So Absalom flees to his grandfather, the one place he felt safe. And he spends three years in Geshur, separated from his father. It takes Joab, David's commander of his army, to stage a little intervention using a little trickery with a, 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 a wise woman from Tekoa to help David realize, hey, it's time to rehabilitate the relationship with Absalom. And through Joab's intervention, David finally agrees to let Absalom come home. But after Absalom relocates to Jerusalem, we're told he doesn't see the king's face for two years. That's five years minimum that David remains separated from Absalom because of what Absalom did to Amnon. Isn't that sort of reminiscent of David's fugitive status from Saul? Saul, who was his family, his father-in-law? The sword shall not depart from your house. After that, you can get to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Absalom spent five years minimum on the out, outside. He's the oldest son now He's the prince. He's, by all intents, the one who's going to sit on the throne next, and yet he can't even be in the presence of the king. So certainly that's going to develop some level of animosity. So what does Absalom do? He incites a rebellion. He sits outside the city gates, and every time somebody came to Jerusalem with a complaint that they were going to bring before the king, Absalom says, you know what? If I were the judge, I would rule in your favor. If I were the judge of Israel, I'd rule in your favor. And he won the hearts of the men of Israel, we're told. He ingratiated himself to them. Whether or not he meant what he said, it, he showed wisdom in the sense that whenever somebody came to Jerusalem, he was going to tell them what they wanted to hear so that they would love Absalom. And then one day he goes to David and says, hey, I've got to go down to Hebron. Hebron was the first place that David had his capital. I need to go down to your former capital city to fulfill a vow I made. And then when he got there, he summoned all the people to him 
to make him the new king. And when David heard about that, guess what David had to do? He had to leave Jerusalem. With his supporters, with those who were loyal to him, he left Jerusalem. And Absalom walked right into the city and sat down on the throne. But Absalom did more than that in his rebellion against David. He got this guy named Ahithophel to be his counselor. Ahithophel, as I mentioned last week, is the grandfather of one Bathsheba. I'm sure Ahithophel was not too happy with the way David handled that situation. And so Ahithophel becomes Absalom's advisor. And we're actually told in the text that Ahithophel's advice was like getting advice from God. It was that well revered. In fact, David's going to have to uh, plant a spy in Jerusalem to counter Ahithophel's great advice. But the first thing Ahithophel tells Absalom to do is to go sleep with David's concubines that were left in Jerusalem to assert his dominance over his father. And that's what Absalom does. In the sight of all the people, they pitched a tent on the roof of the palace, the very roof that David saw Bathsheba from, so that the city would know what Absalom was doing. The sword will not depart from your house. I will give your wives, I know these were concubines, but think about the context. I will give your wives to someone else. David is suffering the consequences. After that, Absalom and David finally engage in battle. Well, David actually doesn't go into the battlefield. His men do. Absalom's in the battlefield. And Absalom had Fabio hair, this great luscious locks of hair. They got caught in an oak tree as he was riding under a branch on a donkey. And he was just dangling there. And Joab, David's right-hand man, came through and killed him. David didn't want Absalom killed. That's the crazy thing. This is, this is the crazy thing about parents. Absalom is taking the throne from David, and David doesn't want him killed because he's his son. I, it's admirable, the love of a parent, but sometimes it's silly. <laughs> the extent will go to uh, protecting our own. I'm not criticizing it because I'm certain I will do the same at some point in my life. But Joab kills Absalom, and David can't bear it. Think about this. The consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba ultimately led to the death of another child. Well, I guess you could say three. The one that was conceived by Bathsheba, Amnon, and now Absalom. The sword shall not depart from your house. And, and when you think about Absalom's uh, sexual misconduct with David's concubines. It's a reminder of David's own sexual misconduct. And when you think about Absalom's death in battle, it's a reminder of David's orchestration of Uriah's death again. And all these things that are consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba point back to David's life in some way. And you know what that reminds me of? You reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. 
but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. David's sin with Bathsheba had some earthly, temporal consequences, and they all connect back to things that he had done himself. And I think the overall message we should take away is that the decisions you make today will have ramifications for tomorrow. And that's the truth about sin and its consequences. Let's close out with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for salvation. It is a gift from you, and the fact that you are a loving and merciful God who is willing to forgive is beyond our comprehension. We thank you for your willingness to do that and for providing the means for that to occur through the death of your Son. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the times you've forgiven us. Thank you for the times you will forgive us. But Lord, help us to sin less tomorrow than we did today. Lord, help us to understand the consequences of our sins and help us to be cognizant that consequences exist so that it might deter us from sinning against you. And Lord, help us in those times where we do fail to truly repent like David did. Lord, we're sorry that we ever sin against you. We recognize that ultimately all sin is against you. Help us, Lord, to not do that. We love you, and it's through your son's name we pray.